I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. If you're joining us for the first time, on this podcast, we sometimes talk about some pretty heavy stuff. Stories focused on true crime, scandals, swindles, and documentaries that range from the socially conscious to the suspenseful and emotionally gripping. But this week, we're doing something completely different. We're getting curious with Jonathan Van Ness. But what gives me the right to kill this little baby insect? Is it because my dad told me when I was like seven that ants are actually intruders in our home, so they must be killed? Best known as one of the stars of Netflix's Queer Eye, Jonathan Van Ness has been exhibiting his curiosity about the world for years on his podcast, Getting Curious. Now, JVN is bringing his own brand of exploration to his new series. Jonathan goes on location and talks with experts about topics that he wants to know more about. And in the six episodes of Getting Curious, he investigates topics like skyscrapers, snack food, insects, non-binary gender identity, figure skating, and my favorite, hair. Do we see other evidence of other hairstyles in this era, or is this the main most popular one for boys and men? Because it was the style worn by the emperor and a kind of variation on the imperial theme, this was very, very popular at this particular moment in time, which is about 10 BC to 10 AD. Wow, male hair trends. I love that. And I'm joined now by Jonathan Van Ness. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I want to take a cue from Getting Curious and call this episode, Why Am I So Obsessed with Jonathan Van Ness? But my question is actually, why is JVN so curious? It's a really good question. Is that the first question? Yes, that is the first question. I think I do have like a natural born curiosity within me. Like I have always been very curious about a myriad of subjects. I was like obsessed with collecting rocks and like stamps, uh, figure skating, the news. Uh, So, you know, gymnastics, some of those things haven't changed. I'm still relatively interested in rocks, but maybe not as much as when I was four. I grew up with my mom (laughs) working in a newspaper. My dad worked at a TV station. So I was always really fascinated by the news and the world around me and always wanted to try to understand it better. And that certainly has never changed. I see being curious and admitting curiosity as a kind of open vulnerability. Do you see it that way too? Yeah, because I think we're kind of encouraged to like, you know, pretend that you know, you know, it's like fake it till you make it just, you know, and I think we, you, it does take a little bit of um, strength or like humility to, to, to say that you don't know and to ask. So you did hair for 13 years and I know that you love hair, but how much of that job was also about being curious and talking to people and digging into who they are? Because I, I get my hair done and I know that that is a huge part of the experience. Oh, it's a huge part. And I mean, especially with new clients or people who you haven't been doing for a super long time, it's really important to kind of dig in and, and ask questions about why we're wanting certain things. You know, what's your hair texture? How much time will you spend on your hair in the day? Um, a lot of times it's like people will bring in a photo and be like, I want this thing. And then it's like, we got to be curious about why that photo, like, what is it about it? And so there's always a lot to unfurl there. Um, And I do think that it's kind of helped me stay curious generally because 
I've just interacted with like thousands and thousands of clients throughout the course of my hairdressing career. So I think it it helped me to stay really fluid in my question asking. You are a powerhouse interviewer, whether or not you see yourself that way or not, you are. And I'm wondering if that comes from those years and years of asking people questions that can sometimes be very personal and difficult because as we learn on the TV show, hair is personal and sometimes very difficult. Yeah, I mean, I do think that that's that's definitely helped. I also think Sometimes when I go back and listen to some of my first episodes of Getting Curious, the podcast, because we're about to have our 250th episode, which I can't believe it's like six years old. I do feel like I've grown a lot as an interviewer. I think I've grown a lot in my prep. I think I've grown a lot in how I prepare. I've grown a lot in how like I I take notes as I interview now, which I didn't when I very first started. So I, I do think that I've grown on the job a lot in terms of my interviewing skills. And that's like so kind of you to say. And that makes me feel really good to hear. Well, you, I think you've become more present. That's what I hear is that it seems like you are settled in as you're listening because I hear now you follow the questions answer very often. Is that something that you're hearing yourself when you're listening to your episodes too? Yes, yes, yes. So this is a spinoff of your Getting Curious podcast. It's a show that I have loved since the beginning and you delve into some obscure stuff with some obscure experts. Now, I have what I call like shower moments, so that's where I get my best ideas. That's like what sparks my curiosity when I'm in the shower, when I'm driving. Where are you when you have those moments of curiosity? Like, I have to know about X. They do happen in a lot of places. I'm a really big fan of a bath, so I definitely get good ideas in the bath. I also get really good ideas when I'm doing hair. I also get really good ideas when I'm working out. Yeah, those three times probably. (laughs) So... A lot of these talking to experts, um, these are people a lot of times that I don't think get interviewed in depth a lot about what they do. Scientists, historians, a lot of wonky, like very specific policy experts. I often feel like I hear them being seen sometimes for the first time. Is that a joyful feeling for you to bring that experience to them in the interviews? I mean, I think it more so is after the fact for me because, like, especially on Getting Curious, the TV show, it's like I, it was my first executive producing experience, like, on a major, like, network. Like, I I executive produced Gay of Thrones, but that's, like, three minutes long. This was a much, like, heavier lift, and um, it just, it was a lot more of a learning experience for me. So, really, I think I was really going into every single person who I had on Getting Curious with trying to understand more, trying to learn more. Is this expert available to, you know, to share their knowledge with us? Is it the right expert to share their knowledge with us? And I think I'm so hungry for information while I'm interviewing the folks on Getting Curious that it's like not till much later that I'm like, oh my gosh, that's so cool that like that this person or this thing is kind of getting elevated. But I feel like I'm so in the moment when I'm doing it that I don't realize it until, like I said, a little bit later. Do you still have like huge, like, holy shit moments? And like, do you remember like recently, like what a huge one of those was? One of them, this just came to my head really randomly, probably just because I'm talking about the TV show. And obviously we do an episode about insects and bugs, episode one. But I, after we did that TV episode in Texas, I found a dead tarantula in my front doorway. So I ended up doing an episode on the podcast again about tarantulas. And one thing I learned from our expert, um, our spider expert, is that tarantulas in the wild can live to be up to 30 years old. 
So hmm. when people kill a tarantula like in the wild because they're scared of them, you're killing something that can be 30. And that I thought was just <laughs> crazy that a tarantula can live to be that old. Yeah, it's a big commitment too, like to kill something that's that old. Like you've ruined a long life, right? <laughs> yeah, and I mean they're they're kind of like important in their ecosystems, and there there's a ton of them in Texas where I live, and so I never really thought they were that interesting or cool or like even present in the, in North America. But it turns out they are. They live here. All right. So on the flip side, have you ever talked to an expert, and I won't ask you to say who, um, and thought like, wow, that's not nearly as interesting as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. but it's very rare it's very 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 rare that that happens when you got the green light to do the tv series um did you have a game plan to take this whole project to the next level like did you have a vision in your head i did but i also you know i actually pitched getting curious some time ago and then it got greenlit in like october of 2020 Hmm. so it was like a month before the election. It was obviously like in the in COVID times. So realizing that we were going to originally, I thought, you know, we could travel a lot more and I thought I could do episodes like all over the place. And, you know, COVID changed a lot for us. Like it meant we really had to stay in Manhattan. We really couldn't travel a lot. We couldn't, we had to be really strategic with like what experts we brought in, where from just COVID made for so many extra hurdles to produce this series. And I certainly think, you know, I've been in, I moved to L.A. in 2009. Uh, I left in 2018. But I worked that entire time towards this moment in the entertainment industry. And I don't think that uh, anyone expects to kind of get out and do their first big project, you know, in the middle of a respiratory pandemic. So it wasn't exactly how I envisioned it. And it did require us to be very fluid and flexible. But I'm really proud of what we created. Did you always know there were going to be musical numbers and animation in the show? Possibly, very strongly for musicals, <laughs> animation, I didn't realize we would have the bandwidth to do that until we got there. And my gosh, we had just had some of the most amazing editors and producers and people on this project that help bring it to life and give it so much more creativity than I could have ever done alone. So like, I love them all so much and we could have never done this project without them. We're running out of food. Yeah, the planet is screwed. So if you want to live, you better change your attitude and eat some bugs. Let's eat some bugs. So there are two kinds of Getting Curious episodes. Both are represented in the TV series. There's the You Don't Know Anything episodes, and there's the I Want You to Know Something I Know a Lot About episodes. Which one is your favorite kind, if you have a favorite kind? Oh, I just think they're really different. And I also would say that, like, in terms of, like, figure skating and hair and the binary, and I kind of say this in different versions, even in those episodes in the TV series, it's like, even though I know a lot, I'm still learning. And because these universes are so expansive and there's so much to learn, you're never going to be done learning. I mean, I'm always learning. I'm still learning more about figure skating as we speak. I'm learning more about gender expression all the time. So um, I do think that they're both just very different like areas of my brain to flex. But I think that it's important for us and this is why I'm so passionate about doing both types, is that we need to always question what we think we know. Whether we know nothing about it or everything, it's always good to stay curious in our mind because that's how we can break really destructive patterns is by like staying curious about things that we think that we know. One of my favorite things about you, frankly, is uh, I've been following your Instagram for a really long time. And I remember like your first figure skating post, like your first beginning journey, learning to be a figure skater, you're falling just like, 
constantly. And you shared that. Like you shared the, I don't want to call them failures because they were learning. Uh, but you weren't like, I want to show you how good I am. You were like, I want to show you what I don't know. Like that's important, right? Yeah, my hips, honey, those things. I don't, I mean, I really, yeah, dang. I mean, I think it's part of the fun. I mean, you know, it is funny, though, because sometimes when I would post something, like, figure skating-wise, I'd be like, oh, my God, this looks amazing. Like, this is, like, so hardcore. And then people would be like, it's so good to just see you flailing. And I was like, that, oh. You're so brave. I thought it was so good. Like, I was, like, I was seeing Michelle Kwan having a moment, but on, like, a 33-year-old non-binary beginner's body. But um, whatever, you know, just kidding. (laughs) Well, for every flailing figure skating one, there's like a truly impressive, like undoable yoga one. So Ooh, you can always yes, like queen. know that you can like always have those to balance. But out, I do so. think it is fun to like be vulnerable and to share like the whole process, like the good, the bad, the ugly. And I think that's important. And, and I love you for asking it. I do want to um, talk about some of your Getting Curious Netflix episodes. You did one on skyscrapers, but you're afraid of heights. What's up with that? I, well, because I've just, that episode was one where I like kind of thought it, I just, I I come from a very rural city. So like skyscrapers, I've always just thought were really pretty and I thought they were interesting. And I kind of thought it, when I, when we got that episode, I kind of thought like, okay, this is probably going to be about like the different types of skyscrapers. I didn't realize that it was going to take like this like other direction of like what skyscrapers do to urban areas, which was really interesting. But yeah, going up on the sixth floor of that skyscraper, like with no walls and people like carabinered into like safety cords and stuff. My knees were just like, and I didn't realize I was going to be as scared as I was until I got up there. And then I just like could not get down fast enough. I'm going to stand here and then there's going to be the operator who's going to be operating this. this oh, so we don't press the buttons ourselves. not. I learned so much in that episode. Mostly that I'll yep. never go back to a construction site again uh, on a skyscraper, <laughs> but I did learn a lot of really interesting stuff. That was a really journalistic episode because it did take that turn. You learned about the environmental impact of building these structures. And also uh, you met the activists who were working to save, it was the Two Bridges neighborhood, right? Yeah, yeah. And just like all the urban displacement that's and gentrification that skyscrapers create that I just, coming from a cornfield in a soybean town, I just like didn't, I literally just never knew. Yeah. So there's a a really funny moment in that episode. Um, You said you were going to try to make it through the whole conversation without saying a word to that construction supervisor about his appearance. And then you couldn't help but compliment him on his perfect fucking eyebrows. Yeah. Your eyebrows are so fucking perfect. And I just (laughs) love the shape of them because it's your signature and it's gorgeous. I just want to say, you know that you are the only one in the world who can do that with everyone and it's fine. Like you can do that. Other people can't do that. You can do that. It's fine. It's it's just the hairdresser in me won't take a rest. <laughs> like won't. And pretem that expert, he is he's like a structural engineer. He's like a genius scientist. And I what as he was explaining me really cool stuff, I was just like Brows, 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 those brows are so cool. I'm a night, I am, yeah, the hairdresser in me just is pervasive. <laughs> so tell me about the phone call in which you asked Padma Lachke to eat bugs with you. She actually was like really, if, if there was anyone, I was like, I need to get someone in here with me to do this. And then Padma just like, I was like, 
that queen's down. She's down for the food cause. She's down to clown. She's so much fun. Have you eaten insects before? Yes, I yeah, have. I, I kind of thought you did. I was trying to figure out what, what yes, you're... Yes, I've had um, ant larvae in Mexico. Oh, yeah. I will eat or wear anything once. <laughs> I love her to pieces, and I was so excited that she was game to come with us. <laughs> she was actually a lot braver than I was. A full disclosure, she is my other TV idol. She's the only other person I would beg as hard to interview as I begged to interview you. <laughs> Um, so I love everything about her. If we were, had a longer time, I would just ask you to tell me everything. Just FYI. She's just really cool. She's just like, she's really cool and really, really knowledgeable. That's all I need to know. Like what you see is what you get. That's all I need yeah, to know. Yeah, 100%. Uh, okay, great. Whew. Are you going back to that bug restaurant? And if so, are you bringing friends? <laughs> yeah, it was so good. It really was really? good. Everything was great. The only thing I didn't love was like that apple fritter yogurt cricket thing. Yeah. And I think Too it's many just crickets. Well, he put a lot on there like Fertelli. He wouldn't have done that many, I think. I think he was like, because I think my I think our showrunner like was over like went over and was like, throw a plateful on there. Just like it's so yeah. <laughs> Push it. Yeah. Push it. See what they'll do. <laughs> so what was the coolest insect you met in that episode? Ooh. I thought it was from like 1909 or whatever. It was like a 100 year old, like, but that termite queen, like that massive, mm. like, I think it's a term, I think she was a termite, but yeah, like yeah. this African, like, termite queen that's just like, it was literally like this big. It was huge. Yeah, like a sack. Yeah, Nasty. they found it in like the early 1900s. And so no longer alive, but I thought that was really cool. Like, how for such teeny, teeny, teeny animals, they all know like what their little job is. Mm. It was so interesting. So you'd also get into the history of hair. And at one point you say we've been getting silly about our hair for 6,000 years. Doesn't that mean it's not silly at all? Yeah. I mean, I think that it's very clear that everyone for like the history of humanity like has been like, what can I do with this stuff? And when I do stuff with this, it kind of makes me feel a little more confident when we have certain ways. But, or you know, through history, there's just been, there's been a desire to like, emulate particular styles through like every single culture that we have, which I just think is really fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I spent my entire adult life working on getting my hair done in eight minutes in the morning and still having it look awesome. Like, it looks that is awesome to me too. A- Your hair. Thank I you. was thinking about that this whole time, the volume, the body. It's so you good. You can say it. It's so good. It's Remember so good. I told you, you can do it. Thank you. <laughs> You've just made my life and you can do that all you want. Um, so you had uh, like that whole episode about sharing the joys of hair expression. And then you had this wonderful conversation with Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, who has alopecia and made the decision to not wear a wig. Because my mother was sort of giving me this message that had been handed down to her. Your crown is your hair. And how our hair just naturally and organically grew out of our head, that coils and kinks and naps um, were not acceptable. Mm. We're not professional. We're not pretty. I mean, she just so generously shared her experiences with us. But I think one of the most important things that I took away from that conversation is that Black women are still dealing um, with such archaic racist institutions around hairstyles. And in that interview, we learned that 50% of Black women can report being sent home due to the way they were wearing their hair at one point or another, which, you know, for so many other people is just something that would be, can you imagine a a, a white man being told like, Nope. Your hair doesn't, right. So it's like, <laughs> nope. it's, um, it, that, I think that was one. Th- and I also just think it's really amazing the way the, when she says that 
you know, hate and harm was legislated. So I believe that healing can be codified and legislated as well. Um, I just thought that was amazing. And I'm so proud of her and the work that she's doing. What do you want people to know about that intersection of power, hair, acceptance, autonomy, um, and what that means to navigate the world now? I think the only thing that I could just say is that um, you are enough. I like can't even think of anything else to say. That was like so powerful. I, <laughs> oh, I love you Jonah, so much. Jonathan. Now, you were talking earlier about the episode Bye Bye to the Binary and how you always have something to learn, even if it's your lived experience, which it is for you. What was the most surprising thing that you learned while you were making that episode? I think one of the things that was really brilliant for me to learn in my interaction with Geo Neptune is that in the incredible creation story that Geo Neptune shares with us. And out from the brown ash tree stepped the first Wabanaki woman and Wabanaki man side by side. Uh. And after that, there was just a little bit of each essence left over. So Galwazid recombined them and sent the first two spirit out of the tree. One thing that I learned about that off camera is that archaeologically speaking, people from Geo's people and tribe have been inhabiting that land for like 12 and 14,000 years. And this creation story has been handed down orally for the duration of that time. So there really is just such concrete proof that like the way that we think of the gender binary in this Western way uh, is not the end. It, It wasn't the only player in town and it was not in fact the oldest. Like it is not, we have you know, you can see and touch how other cultures have done it in a completely different way. And this is not, um, like, the way that we think of masculinity and femininity and how we assign it to gender roles is a complete construct that was made in the last, like, 400 or so years. And when we hear about this creation story from Geo, it just really exemplifies that in such a crystalline way that his was very powerful for me. One of the things that's incredible to me is, you know, I'm a parent of uh, kids who are like 19, 20, 21, and their kids their age and younger. I mean, I live in rural New Hampshire. They are having a completely different conversation uh, about about gender fluidity. And I just see like just a complete generation growing up thinking about this completely differently. Are you seeing the same thing? I well, that's certainly music to my ears. I think that in some spaces, yes. And I think that in other spaces, we have a lot of issues. You know, it, it yeah. really depends on where you are and, you know, who your community is. And so I think that a lot of people are making a lot of progress. But I also think that, you know, for the third year in a row, we've had like increased violence against trans uh, people. We've had increased uh, state laws against trans people. So while there has been progress, there's also a concerted uh, major vilification of trans people right now. As we do experience more progress, a lot of people are really digging their heels in really trying to scapegoat and fearmonger against trans people. So that's a continued issue that we're still dealing with. You know, we've been having this conversation about how these gender norms are recent. And what that actually fills me with is so much hope and possibility. So a lot of times people say, look, how do we get the world to move beyond the binary? And I say, my world is already beyond the binary. And every day I'm living it. It's about community, it's about interdependence, it's about poetry. And I think that we're living poems. There's also an episode about snacks. Yes. (laughs) You do kind of have some painful discoveries in that episode. Um, You, like, looked a little bit shook looking at the brain scans of sugar consumers. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
in in these scans, Dr. Nicole Avina share, shares with me, you can see the way that sugar affects our brain and kind of hijacks our dopamine centers in our brain. Here we have the brain of somebody who is overeating sugar, and then we have the brain of someone who's using cocaine. And That's so fascinating. we do, it's really, really fascinating stuff. But I think the thing that I really took away from that episode the most is that we have to stop shaming individuals. This is like, it's like Dr. Nicole Venus says, like there, this isn't an individual issue, this isn't a willpower issue. Um, I've struggled with eating disorders you know, my whole life. I've struggled with binge eating my whole life. I think that's part of why I wanted to explore this universe on this episode and and try to bring some curiosity. But there's so much stigma and shame for people that are dealing with eating disorders, for people that are de- dealing with that area of their life. And so I, I really took away with that more of a sense of that we have been we are we were kind of set up to be in a situation that was set up against us because this industry is so pervasive and um there's a lot to untangle there's a lot of history to untangle and i'm certainly not done learning about sugar snacks um in the in the 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 way that it plays out in my life so i think that that episode was very much a jumping off point and i'm excited to learn more yeah, I mean, so transparently, that's something you and I share, that sort of binge eating disorder, and I've struggled with it too. And I think the thing that I love about that episode so much is that you also acknowledge that in in many ways, it is also okay to have room in your life for something that you love. I mean, there may be an industry behind it. There may have been designed for us to become addicted to it. But man, those freaking donuts are freaking delicious. delicious. So good. Why why not have joy when you walk into that factory? And I'm not saying bye to and I'm not saying bye to donuts. Yeah. I'm not saying bye to donuts, <laughs> nor am I saying bye to Taco Bell. I'm not saying bye to any of that stuff. So Taco Bell. Oh my God, so you just said Taco Bell. Oh my it's God. the best. Yes. It is the best. I have a copycat recipe for the sauce. I make it all the time. It is the best. Um, the best. Wow. So let's just say for a second, like you had that Lucy moment stuffing those donuts into the box. Was there like a moment where you just want to stick them in your like pockets too, even though you can literally to afford this. to just buy the donuts. That Entenmann's factory, because they did give us, they gave us like three boxes like to go, <laughs> um, or at yeah. least I got three boxes. I think they gave everyone some, <laughs> but like the, because like it takes like four days for them to get like from the factory to whatever store they're going to, but the donuts like fresh out of the factory were wholly different than the ones that like I buy like when they were so fresh like literally my husband my like my producer like our producers that were like you know because we were all bubbled together when we were shooting that it was like the talk of the town of our little quarantine bubble it's like these donuts are so fucking fresh like they're (laughs) so good like they were so and actually the donuts that I'm eating in that like confessional setup that was the the box from the factory like that was just like a few days later it was so good so you've had an experience that we should all envy is what I'm hearing. I, I don't know if they offer tours, <laughs> but they should. <laughs> so the figure skating episode, I love that one. Uh, I loved all of them, by the way. I feel like I'm just saying I loved each one, but they're all really, really good. Thank you. So <laughs> regarding why figure skating is not as popular today as it was when you were growing up, um, is the answer that we need more superstars like Michelle Kwan and Brian Boitano and Tara Lipinski because I'm really hoping it's not that we need more scandal. <laughs> like, can you just talk a little bit about that? Our ladies skating, women skating was really popular through the whole 90s. And that was certainly where I fell in love with it. R- really what it is, and we don't get into this angle super hardcore in the episode, um, but really in Russia, 
figure skating is their football. It is their yep. basketball. It is their, It is the number one sport. It is a huge deal. And for us here, figure skating, and, and their, their women have just been like winning and winning and winning. They've won every single world title with the exception of 2018 since 2014. So, I mean, they've just been dominant for a really long time. And part of that is that their government has a lot to do with like how they incubate and find their figure skaters, whereas obviously ours does not. So we do need more kids to be obsessed with it. We need more people to be obsessed with it in the U.S. We also need more people to watch because there is a little bit of bias in the in the judging. And a little bit. There's a, I mean, especially <laughs> with like these these some of these Russian girls in international competition, they just get. If more Americans watched it and we were more obsessed and we knew more about it, I do think that we could kind of, with more spectators and more eyes on it, you can kind of lift up and, and cheer on your people. And we need we need to lift up our figure skaters more here in the U.S. Mm. And the thing that I learned recently is that, like, the United States is one of the only major countries who participates in the Olympics that doesn't have, like, a ministry of sport. So we don't have, like, a like a national unifying thing where we are, put our, like, government Well, it's funny that you bring that up because I am putting myself forward as the new <laughs> national minister, actually, ministress of sports, mm. Mm-hmm. Um, Jonathan Van Ness, it is, I'm a self, I'm actually, I've circumvented Biden. I've circumvented Senate confirmation. <laughs> we are, li- I am, I am the person now. Um, so mm-hmm. that's what the deal is, but only for figure skating and gymnastics. You're going to scout the country, looking for the talent everywhere, make it accessible and affordable for everyone. Okay. Actually, now um, that I realize how heavy of a lift it, of, of heavy of a lift <laughs> it is, I'm, I'm more of just like a figurehead. I don't really have power in this ministry. I'm more, it's more of a idea um i'm just yeah. kidding I, if, yeah you're gonna be yeah. like you're gonna make the united nations ambassador of sports like you like yes, the parties like the and talk it. about it yeah yes okay okay <laughs> yeah yeah um <laughs> so as i mentioned i have been following you on instagram on your podcast and now on this show for a really long time i know you love ice skating i know you love gymnastics i know you love the movie my girl i know you love yoga i know that you love cheerleading i know that you love gardening is there an obsession of yours that you think would blow my mind that i don't know about He's digging deep. Ooh, the TV show Alone. Ooh, It's this fierce survivalist show where they take like 10 survivalists, they take them to like the middle of fucking nowhere, and they only get 10 (laughs) items, and they're all alone, and whoever lasts the longest gets a bunch of money. And it is nasty. They hurt themselves. It is hardcore, but I am obsessed. It is so off-brand for me, but I love that show. I love it. Yeah, I've seen that show, and that's the one where sometimes you get, like, a yoga teacher, and sometimes you get, like, a brawny ex-military guy, yes. and, like, you never know who's going to be, like, the best But the ex-military ones always go home first. They always talk yes. this big game, but then they always, like, impale themselves with a fishing hook or, like, sprain their ankle, like, carrying too much. I feel like they always go out first. Yeah, and it's always, like, the hippie lady who can just sit still for, yeah. like, two hours, and she's always fine. Knows how to, like, spend her calories, honey, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. (laughs) Jonathan Van Ness, congratulations on the Netflix show. Congratulations on your marriage, by the way, which we didn't even talk about, and on being, like, hands down the best. Thank you so much for joining me on You Can't Make This Up. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you so much. Thank you all. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Jonathan Van Ness. 
I am curious. What did you think of getting curious? Are you making reservations for an insect restaurant? Are you strapping on some figure skates? Did you learn something new about non-binary identity? Do you agree with Jonathan that hair is, well, major? Tweet to me at Reb Lavoy. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And make sure to subscribe to the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. 